Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 5th, 2016. This is episode 1702 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got an interesting one for you today. We haven't actually talked about kind of that urban, suburban, homesteading world in a long time. Uh, there's a lot of questions that come in from small-scale properties for Erica Strauss, who actually gets a call out in today's show for a great article she wrote. But since I've moved to a place where I, I am really in this zone that we're going to talk about today a lot, but a larger property than most people have when they're in that zone uh, with a three-acre property, compared to you know half to one-acre type properties and maybe properties that are a little bit closer in and have a little bit more headaches to deal with than I do. And it's a little self-serving that we have it because all of those problems are behind me. I don't have to worry about those things anymore. So you tend as a person in media to focus about the things you're passionate, excited about, and dealing with at the current time. But I'll tell you the story of how today's show came about. It was from listening to another podcast about a totally different subject in sort of a way. And it spawned this one. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or member support brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. 
Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1702, because the episode is 1702. We have the first English daily newspaper is born. We also have Yo-Ho-Ho, Annie Bonnie the Pirate is born in jail. And lastly, we have The King is Dead, Long Live Queen Anne's War. They're all good. I'm going to read the first one, just because I'm going to read the first one mood today. On Wednesday, March 11, 1702, under the Julian calendar, the first issue of the Daily Current is published uh, by Elizabeth Mallet, the bookseller and printer. Uh, FYI, the word current in this context means up-to-date, up-to-speed. It is a single page containing international news on the front and advertisements on the back. The publisher promises not to lead the reader, trusting that the average Englishman is intelligent enough to come up with his own conclusion, given the facts at hand. The newspaper will soon be sold to another publisher, and he will run it until 1735, when he will upset King George II, and the newspaper will suddenly find itself absorbed into the Daily Gazetteer. Benjamin Franklin is not yet born, but in New England, in the New, the New England Current will be established in 1721 by his older brother James. Ben Franklin will apprentice to his brother and write letters to the editor on the pen name Mr. Mrs. Silence Dogwood which will lead to his brother's month-long imprisonment and Benjamin Franklin's sudden abandonment of his apprenticeship. My take by Alex Shrugged. Freedom of the press in those days was a dream as yet unrealized, and the truth was no defense against libel. Even now in Great Britain, the truth is not a defense, but it helps. The truth barely saved the Wall Street Journal Europe when it was sued by Saudi billionaire after it reported the Saudi bank accounts were being monitored after 9-11 attacks on the United States. Experlative deleted. In the United States, the plaintiff must prove the media reported untruths with malice and with full knowledge of the facts. In Great Britain, the media must prove that the news story was actually newsworthy and within the bounds of responsible journalism. as a much tougher standard to meet. Given some of the worthless so-called news reporting I've seen, I am tempted, but as bad as free press can be, censorship is worse. George Washington called the news media infamous scribblers, but he read still still read the newspapers. Um, I chose this one today because I have to be a journalist today, and I have to report things that today might result in some angry person possibly threatening to sue me. While I think the threats will be baseless and, and completely useless, um, he's welcome to do so and prove me right if he chooses to. And this has to do with the Regenerative Leadership Institute, uh, being marketed as open permaculture, and a guy named Vladislav Davison, 
who is, uh, well, kind of a nasty guy. I've been asked about this, and the only reason I'm reporting on this today is that it is important for me to serve my audience, and I have been asked by hundreds of you about this free PDC you can take online, and then you can pay if you want a certification, and that paying is supposed to get you some other additional support and things like that. Um, up until now, my response has been, don't really have time to look at it. Kind of checked it out. Some of the materials dry, but it seems accurate. Larry Korn seems to be involved with it. He's a great guy. Awesome dude. So you can get a free PDC. It may not be as good as you can get anywhere else, but it's free. And if you want the certification, you can have it. Um, a, a, a certain friend who, to protect him from attack, that's it, very well known in permaculture, said, hey, this guy threatens the Sioux people left and right. Like, he threatens to sue students who post negative reviews about him on Yelp and tries to extort them for $10,000 in order to not be sued. And I'm like, really? That that doesn't sound right. So I did some research. Here is my opinion now after fully researching everything I could find on it. Number one, the course is pretty good, especially most of the stuff done by Larry Korn. Though it is a little bit dry for my taste, it is absolutely factually accurate as far as the course material that I, the little bit that I looked at, it is consistent with the intent of permaculture's founders because Larry Korn did it. It is not sanctioned by the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia or any other recognized institute that I can find anywhere that says we recognize the, the, the course. That's okay because other people do that too. The price, if you choose to pay for the certification, you can't claim that it's bad. Um, overall. But wait till you hear the rest of this. Guarantee. Like, is there a guarantee? Uh, there isn't one. Uh, there's a 100% no money back guarantee. No matter what they do not guarantee your satisfaction, only that they will keep your money. They will not give a one penny refund. And every complaint on the BBB that, that said, hey, I didn't get what I paid for. I didn't feel like this was worth it. Their response is, we said it's, we don't give refunds, so we didn't give refunds. So, Absolutely no refund. This is on their own terms and conditions. Uh, collection methods for delinquent accounts. They threaten you with a lawsuit the day you sign up. It's in their terms and conditions. They use terms and conditions in fine print to do so. So there's a little thing that says terms and conditions on the bottom of the site. You never check a box or agree to that when you when you sign up for this thing. It's just assume that you read them. Okay, so it's it's that that in of itself makes it difficult to legally enforce in any way. Um, in fact, based on legal opinions of two practicing attorneys. One is in Oregon where the terms claim jurisdiction, and one who is a member of the Supreme Court bar that I had look at this, they said the terms are non-binding and would not and would only apply to actual contract law. You would have to actually enter into a contract with terms like that for them to be binding. Things like it has to be done by private arbitration in Oregon. Uh, you just can't bind somebody to that with terms and conditions and, and a link at the bottom of your website. The terms also conflict with each other and show, according to one of my attorneys that looked over this, Gross legal incompetence by whomever wrote them. Okay, these are opinions of attorneys. I will not reveal their identities. They've asked not to be real. Their sources in in this particular thing, and they're just offering their particular legal opinions. If you want to know whether to challenge anything legally, I suggest you get your own attorney to do that. A pattern of behavior evidenced online in my research. The owners of this company threaten lawsuits against anyone publicly criticizing. Uh, the owner of this company 
uh, is, is threats lawsuits against anyone publicly criticizing him in general. And generally, he uses a generic demand for $10,000 and says if you don't give him the $10,000 by like Tuesday or something, the suit will be filed. As such, suits would be baseless. Threats are seldom carried out. This has been done both to people who are simply owners of groups that were spammed by this company and called them out, uh, called out to it for students who posted negative reviews on Yelp. And I'll put links today in the show notes to show the Yelp stuff and, and the Reddit comments and things like that. Um, so, I mean, you understand, like a student that took this course simply went to Yelp and said, I didn't like this course. And, and this guy threatened to sue them unless he gave them $10,000 and took down their review. Okay? Um, <laughs> it's just insane. It's my estimation that you should expect that you'll be threatened with any legal action if you voice dissatisfaction publicly with anything related to this based on what I've seen. They may not do it as it may now be harming them. And they have a reputation for doing it. But the pattern of behavior is there. Anyone can look it up online. Political ideology. The owner has confirmed to me personally that he is anti-gun. I have all this in emails. Donates personally to Michael Bloomberg's campaign. He also financially supports Pam Planned Parenthood. Uh, again, personally confirmed to me. Actually, he threatened me that if I report his actions, he will make donations to both of these organizations in my honor and possibly run a press release about it. Again, I have all of this in email from him. He also told me he considers people from the state of Texas to be stupid rednecks, so if you're in Texas, he's directly insulted you. While that doesn't really relate to his course material, people should know who they're supporting when they're spending you know, their, their money. Uh, a nice little final note. Uh, when I wished him Merry Christmas, he responded as follows, Sorry, we don't do religious garbage in this household. Well, personally, I'm not a Christian, I do, and I do not celebrate the religious nature of the holiday. I do respect the peaceful beliefs of others. Christmas, may I point out at this point, is both a religious and a secular holiday, part of America and many other national, tradi national traditions. To be disrespectful to so many says a lot about a person's views, in my opinion. Again, this is all my opinion. Continuing here, those uh, of the more liberal persuasion, though, should be aware of some other things. The owner claims to be a proud capitalist, and when asked about the business practices above, he accused me of hating America. He also claims there is a permaculture monopoly in the United States that ran a smear campaign against him, though he provides no evidence of this. The only evidence is his past business ventures, threats of lawsuits to reviewers of said same, and threats of lawsuits against his own students for negative Yelp reviews. Particularly interesting reading is available on Reddit, where he is quite insulting towards both the politically left and right ideals in the permaculture community. Again, I'll have links to this for you in today's show notes. In the end, there's a lot of ways to obtain a permaculture education. I know of no other schools or teachers that regularly threaten legal action against reviewers or students. Though many are quite politically left or right, I know of none so insulting to such a broad base of groups. It is unlikely that any student will agree 100% ideologically with any teacher, but some consideration should be made about who you're supporting with your money and your time and your energy. In general, when one takes a PDC before parting with their money, uh, they know more than world-class teachers will be instructing. They actually know who they are. While this information is available, may be available, I was not able to easily find it on their website. The only name in the research I found connected to their online course is Larry Korn, who, again, is well-known and competent. It wasn't clear to me if Larry is actively involved or even endorses what they're doing. 
I figured he may simply have given them the rights to the video in a PDC that he did with them in the past. I reached out to Mr. Korn, and from Japan, he was kind enough to reply to me and confirm that that's exactly what happened, that he stays out of this, but he has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do currently with Vladislav uh, Davidson, uh, open permaculture, and uh, everything else that he calls himself, that he just has rights to that video, and he allows that video to be used because people get access to the video that otherwise would not. Uh, and I won't say any more about what Larry said. I'll just say that, that Larry and Vlad are certainly not good buddies, and I'll just leave it at that because it's only fair to Mr. Korn. So... I know I took a lot of time on this in an intro today, but again, it was so many people that came in at this. And, and Vlad, if you want to sue me for that, go ahead. Like I said, there is protection for journalists today. And everything I've told you is actually verifiable online. And if you do try to sue me, you'll just prove that everything I said is absolutely correct. It's interesting to note that one particular thing here that you can look up and see what type of operation is really going on here. A young lady was running a Yahoo group where Vladimir's people came in, which he confirmed to me that they did this, by the way, in an email. I have all this in email. The guy was, you think I'm insulting when I'm pissed off? This was the most just awful uh, interaction that you could ever have with somebody. Just narcissistic, just, oh, it, it's hard to even understand how somebody could be so insulting so quick to somebody that asks them a question. I'll just put it at that. But this girl, I believe her name is Christine. I'll put a link to her blog post about this. So her, he says his contractors did it. It wasn't him. That may be true. I don't know. Okay. Went into her group and advertised their PDC. Advertised their PDC of having a needs-based scholarship and having a discount of a certain amount. She points out that there's no needs requirements whatsoever. It's just a discount. And by the way, the discount doesn't match the percentage offered. He immediately sent her an email threatening to sue her if she didn't give him $10,000. Okay, She does a blog post, puts all this up on the blog post and says, go ahead, sue me. And you know what he does? He does nothing. And you know what he told me in an email? He told me in an email and said, you tell people whatever you want. Again, I am reporting this with his permission due to his arrogance. Um, said that he decided it wasn't worth their time, but they believed he had a good case. They believed they had a good case. You didn't have a good case. All I'm saying is... Be careful if you decide to deal with this company. Do a little bit of research. They say they have an A-plus rating with the BBB. That's because their terms are so ironclad that when people complain, they just say, yeah, we did that. There's nothing you can do about it. And BBB apparently doesn't give a shit about its own reputation because it continues to give them an A-plus rating for simply telling people they're screwed. Okay? That, that, that's what I've seen. Again, I'll have links to BBB. I'll have links to Reddit. I'll have links to Christine's blog post. From that point... You make your own decisions about who you want to work with and who you don't want to work with. And obviously, we do offer a PDC through Perma Ethos, but we don't market that really heavily. We did that to get the thing off the ground. It's there. It's available. I don't consider this guy a competitor, but when you guys are asking me if I would endorse this, I owe it to you to tell you yes or no, and the answer obviously is no, and to give you the information as to why I personally could not endorse this. You've asked, I've given you an answer. Uh, and we will go on from there. And for me, this is dead. I'm sure it's not for him, but for me, this is dead now. Next up, let's talk about actually growing some stuff before we get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, I want to give you Bob Wells' plant of the week, a plant that you can uh, grow in your own backyard that will be there for perennial production for you 
for a long time to come. And uh, that plant this week is the Phoenix Tears Goji. Uh, berry. It is adaptable from zones 5 to zone 9, also known as wolfberry. These nutritious berries are eaten fresh, juiced, or dried like raisins. The berries are popular as a medicinal herb. They are among the highest in protein and antioxidants of any berry. They have more carotene than carrots, contain all the essential amino acids and many minerals. You can grow this attractive Chinese native on a trellis to more than 10 feet tall or trim it as a bush and keep it 4 to 6 feet tall. Light purple bell-shaped flowers bloom in May and continue throughout the summer. The third year and thereafter, flowers are followed by orange-red berries. The plant is self-fertile, drought-resistant, and likes half the full-day sun and well-drained soil. It prefers warm summer days and cool nights, prefers neutral and somewhat alkaline soils. Our plants are grown from cuttings and superior cultivars. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants, trees, uh, fruit trees, nuts, berry plants, vine fruits, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at bobblesnursery.com. I'll throw a couple other things in. I've always read the third year and, 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 and up. Good, healthy plants for me have produced berries, sometimes one or two berries the first year. Second year have done pretty well, and my area is harsh. A, a big thing about this plant, though, It's so hardy and yet so weak at, in some ways. When you get plants from anywhere, and I've bought them from Gurney's, from Raintree, I've gotten some from Bob. When you first get them, they tend to look really kind of weak. And what they really need, in my opinion, is really beautiful potting soil and a pot in a shady area and love. They don't need to go straight into the ground, especially in spring-summer. Fall, I think you'd be just fine going straight to the ground with them. But getting them kind of adjusted to the fact, it seems like they, once they're in the ground and established, they're like the hardiest thing you'll ever find. But they don't seem to like to be shipped and dug up and what have you. Yet, you can cut green stems off them, stick that in moist potting soil, keep it in the shade, it roots in like five days. Little roots in five days, but you'll have rootlets in five days. No... Uh, misting system, no humidity dome, no root hormone, no nothing. So getting a few of them established is all you need to do. You can produce them for the rest of your life. You want a good softwood, green, you know, kind of halfway in between being a brand new thing and, and hardening off for your cuttings. And boy, you can make a lot of them. Um, they're a great plant. Uh, I do think they taste better dried than fresh. Uh, so you might want to consider that with your long-term storage needs. But, uh, There you go, the Phoenix Tears Goji. will be a link, of course, to today's show notes. And again, we used up some time there. Um, it was kind of a special report that I had to bring in. Uh, again, I don't like to do that as far as going back to Vladislav um, and open permaculture and what have you. But when you guys are asking me my opinion of something and it, it comes to light that things are that disturbing, I owe it to you to tell you. So hopefully that saves some people um, misery or angst in the future. And I'll still say this. Um, they're going to spam the hell out of you with your email address because that's what they do. And it's not really spam, to be fair. It's not spam. They're going to email promotional email after promotional email after promotional email from the, 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 the things I've seen people post online when you opt in. But in the end, the PDC is mostly Larry Korn, and he's very good. So it is there. It is a free resource. But just think about who you're dealing with. Okay. All right, let's get into the main topic of today's show um, and actually getting things done. And we're going to talk about urban and suburban permaculture. Well, today, this morning, uh, I was asked to be on a show called Radical Personal Finance as a guest. And I listened to a sample episode. I always, If I'm going to be on a show, I listen to a couple episodes. Um, and 
I chose to listen to one called Myth and F- Myths and Facts, Nine Things I Used to Believe and Teach About Home Ownership That I No Longer Believe. It was the story of government stupidity at its finest. If you want the story, you can listen to that episode. I have a link in the show notes for you today. But the short version is a guy moves outside of city limits, avoids HOAs. He can't find any laws against chickens or having things like a pile of brush on his uh, on his own property. And he's kind of in like this rural out-in-the-county area. Uh, but he gets fined for a brush pile on his property and gets fined for his chickens and has to get rid of his chickens. On top of that, there's this beautiful... Old shit. It's been on the property 30 years sitting there. But when the county comes around because of these complaints, they say there's no permit on that shed. And he ends up, in, in just a short version, having to tear down this large, expensive shed because it was so costly to try to fight it, it wasn't worth it. They were going to find him $1,000 a day for every day that he had the shed without a permit and a zoning variance because it turned out it was a little bit too tall and a little bit too far back for their, you know, their crap. And I, I really couldn't listen to the entire episode because to me this shit makes no sense. I'm so ever loving done with government in so many ways when I hear things like this. Yet Josh, the show's host, makes a valid point about ownership mythology, myth- mythology that's true in many instances. That people think because you own your own home you can do whatever you want and you find out so many things that you just would think are not a problem, especially if you move a little outside, still are a problem. You still have the, the, the tyranny of government in your life. But on the other hand, there are current victories in other areas. Just this week, San Antonio did something great. San Antonio, Texas. Um, they just declared that urban farming absolutely is legal in San Antonio. In many ways, what we're seeing right now amounts to me as like a low-violence multi-front war. And when I wrote this for the show notes, I thought maybe it's a no-violence, but it's not no-violence. I mean, they're going and tearing people's gardens out. They're enforcing this with the force of the state, and that is violence. There's no way around that. So, But it's you know we don't have people shooting each other or anything, so when you use a word like war, you got to kind of put it in context. But I do see it as a multi-front war. While many in this nation are determined to like sanitize everything into conformity, others seek to regain independence and heal, and frankly... Our most basic, they, they want to return to our most basic freedom. And that most basic freedom is the freedom to use the land we own the way we choose, as long as we don't harm anybody else. And for some of those people out there that want to sanitize everything, I have to tell you, you being offended or not liking what others do or not liking what you're seeing uh, does not equal being harmed. It equals that you have a problem that's you. It's not the other person. As an anarchist, I personally work outside the system. Every and anywhere I can. By inspiring, frankly, tens of thousands of you guys to get shit done in this world, though I'm actually creating and opening new fronts in this war. Every time somebody goes out and puts in a backyard garden, it's a new front. Now, whether or not that's going to actually engage anything, I don't know. But the more you take unopposed, the harder it is for the enemy to take it back. If you look at this from a warfare standpoint, and I do. Others then in the system then take up the fight and work inside and outside the systems in their own ways. And we have people doing this everywhere. This is not my movement. This is a movement. We also need to balance things. I really recommend anybody becoming an urban farmer, suburban homesteader, etc., read this great article that I have in the show notes today by our own Erica Strauss, and it's called Don't Be an Urban uh, Urban Homesteading Asshole. And it's I'm not going to read it or anything. I'm just going to say I really recommend you read it. But another thing to kind of kick this off for me is... I saw on Facebook a post that somebody put on my wall uh, on for Walden Labs uh, blog. 
And the title of the article is How to Prepare for Collapse in Nine Steps, a case study with David Holgram, who is the co-originator of Permaculture. And it's really a great article, and it's about his homestead, uh, Melodora, in uh, Hepburn Springs, Australia, a two-acre homestead in a small rural township, and it's been you know in establishment for 25 years. And it's really interesting, and it's very different from what I'm doing, but we have a commonality, David and I, in the location that we're at that I think is important to point out now because if you can do it right, it's the number one way to be left the hell alone and have everything you could want as a small producer from a standpoint of a market, a standpoint of services and, and, and availability of materials and interaction with other people. I'm going to read a quote from David in this article. The urban rural fringe is an edge where the resources of both the city and the country are accessible. The location of the land and its relationship to both town services and the surrounding natural and community environment affect its potential as much as the natural characteristics of the land. That's where I live. Okay, and it's not way me because I didn't really understand. I mean, I, I saw kind of the, the basic vision of that when we, we looked at this property. But the main thing I knew is it worked for my wife. It had great big outbuildings. It was three acres and it was unincorporated land in Tarrant County. Unincorporated land in Tarrant County means you don't need a permit to do shit. Okay, and, and I confirmed that. With Tarrant County, like they, we don't, we don't do that. We don't have any way to do that. We don't have the resources to do that. You need a permit to put in a septic system so you can build a house, and after that, you're on your freaking own. Uh, one guy told me, unless you're cooking meth, we don't care. So that was like, ah. But as we went in and started actually building the business with the duck eggs and now other products, I realized it's that urban rural fringe that makes this spot work. And it is the sweet spot. It is the best place to be. Because you have freedom and you have country and you have space and you have ability to have animals and you have all the things many of us want when it comes to being able to homestead. And yet you're still close enough to a market to take product to market or have market come to you. And in many instances in this fringe, you actually have the ability without being molested by the state To have people come to your property, buy your product, and go away, and that saves so much time and effort unless you focus on production versus transportation, shipping, going to farmers markets, whatever. It is the holy grail. It's also getting harder and harder to do. And it, it, it has a direct consequence of affluent, upwardly mobile yuppie types moving further and further out of suburbia toward that, that same type of development. They want a couple acres of land, they want pretty trees, they want birds singing. But they don't want to see a bird that's a duck unless it's a wild duck on a golf course. That's okay, but you having a duck on your property, that bothers them. And the, the place that I've seen this be the most chronically problematic is the northeastern United States and the California area. I'm not saying it doesn't happen everywhere. It happens in places like Arizona where you're going, really? But I'm telling you. And then Oregon, Washington, for all the good things that happen with permaculture in Oregon and Washington, the amount of government bullshit that people deal with, especially to the eastern parts of the states, is unbelievable. And you really have to kind of, if you want this sweet spot, avoid those areas. And the problem is it's like a cancer. It's spreading. It's spreading. There's... There's, you know, even with all the good that I have at this being in this urban rural fringe, 
down the road from me about a mile and then go about another half mile, there's two huge developments. All of the properties are like an acre plus. They're all relatively new homes. I'd say less than 10 to 15 years old. They're all beautiful. They're all McMansions. And I guarantee you, if I bought one of those houses, put up a fence around my property, threw some chickens and ducks in the backyard, all hell would have broken loose. And I guarantee you, both of those neighborhoods, just looking at them, have HOAs. Okay? So even here, location is key. Because in this instance, and the guy that did the podcast and inspired the show, he made sure there was no HOA. He still had a problem because his county had all these regulations. So you have to check at every level. And we'll talk a little bit more about how you do that in a minute. Now here's the irony. The very people creating this conflict in these fringe areas, the yuppie types, they want to buy what we want to produce. They're the people that go to Whole Foods and spend two to three times what they have to on groceries to get organic, locally produced. They're the foodies that go down to restaurants that say, we use locally produced tomatoes and eggs. They want the product locally produced. They just don't want it produced in their location. They don't want to see it. They want to be part of that trend, but they don't want it to interfere with them. Now, there's something very interesting that I just watched. We watched a whole series. I think it was called High Profits. And it was about the marijuana issue in Colorado. And specifically, one shop which was called the uh, Breckenridge Cannabis Club that was part of several shops that went into Breckenridge and were medicinal marijuana shops. All of them except them failed when it was only medicinal. It was expensive to be in downtown Breckenridge. They held out for recreational. They were there when it happened. They got a variant so they could stay for a couple years, and they made a ton of money. They made a ton of money, and they ran a good shop, and they didn't break any rules, and everybody agreed with that. But the town council wanted them out once it became recreational. In spite of the fact that buttloads of money were going to Breckenridge for sales tax, the town council wanted them out. They had some friends on the council, but not really. Maybe one or two. But in the end, the, the council pushed out. Instead of doing an up or down vote and dealing with the consequences, they decided to call for a special election, punt, and send it over to the people. And then the council members, who were tied in with the big money in the, in the, in the city ran a huge campaign through a pack and sent this message to voters. Marijuana is fine. We have no problems with it at all. Breckenridge has spoken loudly and voted in a 70 percentile to allow marijuana within Breckenridge. That's okay. But it might offend some people. It might cost us some tourist dollars. We really don't know yet. When marijuana is on Main Street everywhere in America, we can look at marijuana being on Main Street in Breckenridge. But not now. Marijuana, not on Main Street, not yet. These guys can just move two miles away and be okay. And a, a town that consistently voted 70% pro-marijuana voted over 70% to push this shop that had been in business on their street for like nine years at this point out of their street. And they also had another rule. Their marijuana sales had to take, care, take place in the upper floor. So what this company did, they left the, the, they, they kept the shop. They kept the shop, and they kept the name for that shop. They moved out to Airport Road, as they called it, and changed the name of the company that actually serves the marijuana, set up their own little establishment out there. And the problem is now they have, there's four shops that are all attached to each other like a strip mall. So there's no differentiation whatsoever. There's like one place you can go to get your marijuana with four shops, and they all have to split the business, no advantage to location or whatever. They kept the place in town. They kept the sign there. 
And they, they're basically like a head shop now, but they don't sell marijuana. And they give a discount coupon and tell people where to go get it. Okay? If you think about this, and some of the council members in this documentary, it's on Netflix, it's like a nine-episode documentary, said, I have no problem with marijuana. In fact, I've been to their store and bought marijuana for myself. I just don't want it on Main Street. Because it might. There's no way to know. The guys were saying over and over, I don't think we should risk it. I don't. And these are all like really rich people with huge property developments and ski resorts and stuff. And they're worried about protecting. Somebody from Texas, they said, might be offended and not come to Breckenridge. I'm going to leave that go because I didn't bring it up to go into that issue. It's just an analogy. It's exactly what's happening in these urban communities and these suburban communities and these fringe communities. As more and more upwardly mobile wealthy people move into them, And they want their little McMansion and a little fake ranch with nothing on it that actually makes it a ranch. But they put out a fence that looks like a ranch. And they don't want the neighbors to have ducks and chickens. And all. Most of these people don't actually have a problem with the concept. They just don't want it near them because it could hurt their property values. And they've lost respect for other people's rights. And, and my opinion is, this is actually the only place for HOAs. If a community feels that strongly about it, let them set up their little HOA when it's established, and they could be that little island that doesn't allow that stuff, and leave people alone otherwise. Let's, get, let's let local government work then. And if you can't get enough people together to organize a local government, you don't get one, right? And that's what an HOA is, is local government. But this is, that, isn't it interesting that the biggest pain-in-the-ass people that complain about this stuff are generally the same type of people that go down to a restaurant and throw down 30 bucks to eat a locally produced meal that would cost them half that or less if they went to another restaurant that just sourced their stuff through Cisco or whatever. It's just the case. Now, this I want to give you some thoughts on actually finding a place for you. Number one, don't just read laws. Ask the enforcers of the laws before you buy. And I want to point out, this is not foolproof. I covered a story a few years ago about a guy that, or a family that ended up in this situation. Sweet Pea Farms, I think it was. They confirmed that it was okay for them to have goats where they lived. And then when they moved in, the guy that they confirmed it with it said he had no recollection of that and there's no way he would have ever said that. And I think they ended up on the wrong side of things. We tried to help them as best we could, but I think in the end they lost. They were in Michigan. Okay? So you can't just do that. Right, but you, but it does help. It's helpful, you know. It, I want to build. A, call them up. Don't don't even tell them you're going to buy a place. Just say uh, I live out in this area and I'm going to build a shed. Do I need any kind of permits for that? Right, because they're going to tell you yes or no. Like I was going to get some goats. Do I need some goats? Do I have? Does there any problem with me owning some goats out here? And they may not know. And don't just take one person's word for it. And ask people's bosses and supervisors. But if if you really are a, attached to doing something. Cover every base before you, you think you can. All right? And I'm, I'm leaving out in my notes today that, that don't go into an HOA. I think that kind of speaks for itself unless, you know, I, I think there also could be a place for an HOA if the HOA actually protected all of this. It was more of like a property owner's association that says all of these things are protected and nobody that lives here can bitch about it. But generally, smaller branches of government don't stand up to larger branches, right? They actually create additional regulation and then use the larger branch to enforce their will. That's how HOAs work. That's how cities work. That's how states work. It, we, we need more of that outward type. If you're going to have government, it, what it should be doing is standing up for individual rights 
rather than taking more of them away. Good luck with that. That's why I'm an anarchist, okay? Uh, but get the answers before you move in, before you make an offer on a property. Um, and the biggest thing is, if you get into an area where you look around and there's some things that you don't even like, like I live in a place with some burnout trailers to my, my west, I would love those gone. I can't tell you how much I would love those gone. But you know what those told me? If those have been there that long, and no, and I'm sure people have bitched about it, and no one can do anything about that, no one can bitch about my, my shed, my garage, my ducks, whatever. Okay? Now, it wasn't the only litmus test, but it was definitely a litmus test. And, and, and like, our real estate agent was, like, cringing when, when, when she realized those were there. Like, and like, we've been working for eight months, and you don't know anything about what we want at all. You really don't. She's like, it's so trashy. I'm like, just stop talking. Seriously, just stop talking. You know? All I did is I looked at that and said, well, nobody's going to be building on that piece of land anytime soon. That guy can't sell that place. And when I found out what he wanted for it, I realized it'd be a very long time. And if he ever asked a reasonable price, I would be there to buy it. So it was just a perfect hit. And we, we fell into it. I want, I'm not going to tell you we're smart. I'm telling you we fell into it, but we recognized when we saw it. So if you see things that you would go, I really would prefer not to have that here, you're probably better off. Because that means anything you want to do is probably moderate in comparison. And I'm not saying necessarily right next door to you or anything, but, you know, because there were places we looked at where we drove around the corner from the place that we were looking at. It looked pretty nice. And there were, like, trailer homes there with trees growing through the roof. We do have some of that, but, I mean, with people living in them that way. You know, like 50 cars parked in, like, a single wide trailer all in one place and that many people living in there, like, basically... Uh, There's a lot of that stuff around here with, with immigrant labor where they'll just, I mean, they must be sleeping under like cordwood or something to do it, but it happens. And there's all kinds of problems that come with that level of density of, of, a, of, of a group of people like that, and we opted out of those. That house actually had its other problem. Its foundation was broken in half, so it wouldn't happen anyway, but like that was a turnoff. So I'm not saying to go to the extreme, but I'm saying if you find a place where people pretty much are able to live the way they want to live, and it's a little bit lower of a standard than you would choose, you're probably going to be left alone. And that's part of freedom. See, real freedom is, is, is not getting everything you want. Real freedom is being able to do what you want as long as you don't harm anybody else and not being able to make other people live to the way you want them to live to. That's actually freedom. People are afraid of freedom. Um, if you can get agricultural zone land, it, it, it just immediately kills so many problems. But it's getting harder and it's more expensive. It's a different type of mortgage. Um, there are certain requirements and restrictions that come with it. Uh, and you really need to think deeply before you do it. But in a perfect world, if you want to put a little four-acre farm, you get four-acre zoned agricultural, which is difficult to do in a lot of places. Here in Tarrant County, my understanding is you have to have at least five acres that's dedicated to some level of agricultural production to get zoned ag which would generally mean that you would need like five and a quarter acres or something like that because they're going to say the house itself is residential and then the rest of the property is zoned ag in most situations. All of this varies by locality, okay? But, I mean, the big problem with agriculturally zoned land is instead of becoming something that's considered cheaper, it's becoming something that's being considered more of a desirable thing and therefore more expensive. But really think about what you want to do, what you can do, and what you should be doing before you make a decision to acquire a piece of property somewhere. Okay? And I, I think that we need to look at 
what we can do to work with the systems and what's available to our own advantages. Because some of us, and the reason I'm doing a show like this is I know from talking to this audience that the majority of people live in a place where they have somewhere between two-tenths to three-quarters of an acre, and you can see houses all around you. I know that. I know many of you want out of that, but many of you also feel like it's what I have, I'm going to work with what I have, and I'm going to do the best I can with it. And we look at people that have done it to the nines in suburbia and have been left alone to do it because it's a good location, or they just did it so well that everybody backed off, or whatever it is, and you go, you know what, there's some real advantages to this if I could just get it done. Well, the key to doing that is to work the system to your advantage. The first one I'm going to say is if you're really looking to do this for profit and you want to do like high-volume vegetable production in urban areas, suburban areas, look at Curtis Stone's model. I call it a distributed model. He does have a property that he owns and, 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 and farms now, but he also has a lot of other small properties. And what he has are these rows that look like big gardens, and they're all in different houses. He doesn't own any of them. He can't be directly attacked. And to Josh's point, he was the, the host of the podcast I was talking about, Radical Personal Finance. Um, there's some advantages sometimes as being a leaseholder versus an owner because if anything really bad happens in the, the, the county or the city or whatever comes after the property owner, that's not you. Though you don't have any options if, the, if, the, if that owner just says, well, because of this, you got to go. you got to go. right? So I, I don't believe that ownership is a myth. I believe that ownership has to be really understood in every single property and every single situation for the ownership to mean what you think it means. Okay, But I'm not going to say a lot about Curtis's model because we've had him on the show. He's got a great new book out. I'll have a link to where you can get his book. Um, but that model for the person who just wants to make a profit center is probably the best model. I want to talk more today about people that want to do this for themselves on their own property, whether or not there's a potential for profit or not. Many people just want their own little place to produce a lot of what they use for themselves. You know, it, it really is becoming a war. And, and that war, again, is for people that want to sanitize everything. Uh, and it, the, on the other side is people that just want independence and freedom, you know, and they want to regain that. They, they want the ability to decide what food goes in their body. And they want to return to much of what you would consider our roots in America. The suburb, this is what I think people need to understand. The, the entire layout of the suburbs initially was for urban homesteading. What the, the, the planners of suburbs wanted to do was set up places for people taking all of this, these jobs during the, these, these various technology revolutions and industrial revolutions. So we call it the industrial revolution. There's various phases of these things where you know car companies came into Detroit and then you know people went to work and they made more money than they could on the farm, but they didn't really want to give up the farm. So the suburbs were set up so you'd have these houses that were affordable and a backyard where people could have gardens and things like that. That's how it was designed. That was, and they made it look that way so that the person could say, hey, I don't need a farm anymore, but I can still grow my own food. Okay, I can still have a couple chickens, etc. The government encouraged this behavior during World War II. They called them victory gardens. And they even encouraged people to keep chickens and use the chickens for various things. So we're, we've now lost sight of that. Okay, But we also have to accept what is. And, and I, I think it's important for me to say at this point before I go further... I wish that none of the things that I'm about to tell you were necessary. 
I wish that when you owned a piece of land, it was yours and people could very well piss off if they didn't like what you were doing, unless you were leaching chemicals into their yard or something like that. That if you had a couple chickens running around in your backyard, as long as they weren't going over your neighbor's fence, your neighbor couldn't say shit no matter where you lived, including downtown New York City. That's how I wish things were. They're not. So then we have to adapt. We have to adapt. Just like the marijuana shop. They didn't want to leave Main Street, but financially it was the smartest thing. And they did it smart. They left their presence there. So what the town really wanted was to get rid of the pot on Main Street. But yet, it's still, that sign's still right there, right on Main Street. Okay? And then they moved their retail operation and they increased their growing operation using the profits they had already made. They adapted to the situation, not because they felt they should have to, but because that was the reality. And I think many of us can learn from that example, whether we think pot should be legal or not. doesn't matter. We can still learn from the example. So the first thing I'm going to say is think about your livestock choices if you're going to have livestock. To me, if people say, well, I want chickens. Okay, why do you want chickens? I want fresh eggs. Number one answer. Number two answer, want to produce meat. Great, not going to do that on small scale in any meaningful way. You're going to call four birds every other year. Five birds every other, six birds every other, and they're, they're crappy meat birds. So you're not going to produce meat in an urban homestead with chickens. Not going to do it. Okay. Composting and getting rid of waste. Okay, great. Let's see if we can do all three of those in a way that will work better for the urban homesteader that will have you being left alone. Okay. Quail and worms. Set up a worm bin. Use those to recycle the majority of your waste, and they'll be happy to do it. Set up some quail and pens. And you can set up two quail cages with eight quail each in each cage that will take up about a foot high and four feet wide and put your quail in there and at that point you'll produce more eggs probably than your family can use yes they're smaller than chicken eggs it takes about three to be equivalent to a chicken egg but they're also nutritional powerhouses The birds are relatively quiet, except your ruse, and you can decide whether or not you want to have males. You can have one male and, and pair that one up to, to make reproductive action whenever you wanted to. You could put a female with him or two females or three females with him and, and look for a quiet male or two that don't crow as much. But if they're in a garage closed up or they're in a, a nice outbuilding somewhere that just looks like a garden shed, you're probably not even going to have neighbors hear it. I was out today thinking how loud my ducks are and how lucky it is that my, my neighbors never complain. Even though there's nothing they can do, I still I don't want them to complain. And then I thought about it. If you're indoors, you don't hear them. In a well-built house, you don't hear them at all. They're right out in my backyard. My neighbor, ne they don't, never come outside. They don't hear them. My other neighbor's freaking 250 yards away from my property, where his house is. He, he doesn't hear them either. And, and they're just not the kind of people who complain. But if you have a quail that goes, that's kind of how they, they crow, They're not that loud when they're inside of a structure or even just kind of sound dampened with, with, with things around them. So we have the quail, we have eggs. It's a much superior meat product, and we can produce meat uh, about every six weeks far in abundance of what you'll ever do with chickens in suburbia. And then the composting, we go all to our worms. Now the quail are going to produce droppings, which we can also feed to our worms. The quail is superior. I don't care if you're allowed to have chickens. The quail is a, is a livestock animal on small properties, beats the chicken 76 ways from Sunday. They have better feed conversion ratios. They lay at higher frequencies. They're easier to process. They're a superior meat bird. They're smaller, but the quality of the meat is so much better. So that would be one way. Another would be 
people are excited about ducks a lot by and large to the work we're doing. I mean, it's made ducks a thing. Uh, people that didn't get it at first, I mean, Nick Ferguson told me, he said people say, I don't know what's with Jack and his ducks, man. He's, this guy loves ducks. It's crazy. And like, you know, talks to him like three weeks later. He goes, you know, I'm starting to understand this duck thing. I think we're going to get some ducks. Uh, so people want to do ducks. Ducks are not for small properties. We have people come here. And they think, we want to get some ducks. And I ask them, like, how big their yard is. And they have these little suburban yards that, that just becoming more, more common around here, which makes no sense, given the, the land available around Dallas-Fort Worth. But it, as they're stacking these suburbs in, the backyards are shrinking. You know, and they have, like, from their porch to their fence, they have, like, 20 feet. And they have, like, a, a 60-foot wide by 20-foot strip of grass. And I'm like, you don't want ducks. First of all, you're going to get bitched at by your neighbors, and they're probably going to, you know, win the fight because people are stupid. But your whole backyard is going to be a mud hole. You're not suited for this animal. Do you know what works? Rabbits. They're quiet. They live in a cage. And even if you don't want to produce meat with your rabbits, a couple rabbits fed scraps from your garden and stuff like that, the value of their manure exceeds their feed cost, which you can also then use some direct because it's a cool manure and feed some to your worms. So now we're taking worms and rabbit manure and we're feeding those to our worms that are producing a higher quality compost to build soil with on a small property and we're going to build soil like crazy. Because generally people don't complain about trees and bushes and flowers and stuff in your backyard anyway. Okay, So we're going to focus mostly on the backyard with this. We're going to sheet mulch, we're going to compost, we're going to build soil, we're going to make the backyard magnificent And we're going to do what we can get away with in the front yard. This is how to work that system. We're going to try to also, if we can, locate property with at least two neighbor-free property lines. Corner lots do this automatically. Okay. Sometimes you get into a situation where there's a property that's, that's set up where there's like all the houses back up to, to land that can't be developed anymore. And that stays woods. That's beautiful. There'll never be anybody back there. Now I only got people on both sides of me. If I do that in a corner lot, I only got one neighbor, one neighbor to deal with. All I got to do is keep that person from bothering me, and I'm probably never going to have a problem. These are things to think about. On that, people bitch about what they can see, and they bitch about things that are stupid and ridiculous, but politicians listen to. So one of the biggest ways I've seen people enforce their will on their neighbors is to claim Well, what they're doing is causing so many cars to be here, it's hard to find a place to park. It's dangerous for the kids, blah, 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 right? There was one house recently, they were doing like a religious service every Sunday in a house. And there was like eight people showing up for it. And, that was the, and that's actually what got it done. And this was Texas. It makes me sick, right? Uh, the, the, the fact that people made that case, that it was dangerous. There was too many cars on the street. And you're thinking, all of these neighbors have holiday parties and weekend get-togethers, and they do the same damn thing, but these people were doing it every Sunday. So it was a problem. Okay, So what that means from this world, if you're doing sales of product, avoid on-farm or on-property sales unless you know you're golden. Having cars come and go, come and go, come. That makes people start looking. In this day and age, you know what they start thinking? They're selling, they're selling drugs. They're selling drugs. They're selling drugs, man. Right? And then even when they realize you're not, it's still, then they start, like, anything that encourages the initial complaint or con concern starts building up in people's heads. And people always make things out to be worse than they are. So avoid things that cause problems. Now, the perfect thing would be in a neighborhood where there's so many people that love what you're doing The people would walk down the street since you're in a local neighborhood, down the sidewalk, come to you and buy your product directly from you. That would be great. There'd be no complaints there. 
you got to think about it. We do all on-farm sales. I'm not saying not to do on-farm sales. I'm saying not to do it unless you know you're golden. Unless you know there's nothing anybody can do even if they don't like it. Because it's just offering a problem for you. Um, Another way to, to kind of work things to your advantage is to select places where you can do a lot with public foraging, hunting, and fishing opportunities so that you're not relying just on your, your property. Dorothy and I watched a show about uh, waterfront property or it was log cabins or something like that, and they, they, these people looked at this property, and there was a trout stream in the backyard. It was only a couple acres. It was a beautiful cabin. It was something we could actually afford. And it was surrounded by wilderness. And I looked at it and went, I'd have a small garden. I would never be able to do my ducks the way that I do. I probably wouldn't even have ducks there. I'd probably do more like the, the system I'm getting. But I'm like, I could live there. It's not what I want to do in my life right now. But if like I had to or like I, I made some radical decision to change what I was doing, I could adapt to that and be pretty damn happy. And I could eat a lot of fish and a lot of game and do a lot of foraging. And so you, you have to figure out like, How bad do you want what you want, and what do you really want? Because everything you want comes with a sacrifice of something else you'd like to have. So I'm not exactly thrilled about living in the state of Texas. There's a lot I like about Texas, but I'm talking about weather and geography and heat. Okay, I'm a kind of guy that when I look at like the United States of America, I look at places like Tennessee. Right, and the mountains of Tennessee with deep soils, and think, man, what I could do there. But if I were in a little bit more rural area, not quite the perfect urban rural fringe, would I be running 130 ducks and doing on-farm sales of eggs? Probably not, because I wouldn't have that advantage. I also wouldn't be close to my family. Right, that makes my so we all have to make decisions about what we want and how bad we really want it. And if we don't want it bad enough to make the sacrifice, then we say, well, how much are we willing to give up, and what does that get us? And that's how you have to look at this. Okay, you also have to accept you can't win every fight. You're not going to win every fight. Like every time somebody decides that I'm going to get an ordinance passed, lets people keep four chickens in their backyard or whatever, they're not going to win. But losing a fight is not losing a war. And I see this as a multi-front, national-level guerrilla war right now. now. Here's the good part. They are the establishment. We are the guerrillas. The guerrillas almost always win. Because you can't take out a leader. It's too decentralized. The, the, the attacks never go away. And we frankly want it more than they do. And that's true in true warfare. And it's true in conflicts like this. And this is a conflict. This is a conflict of ideology. This is a conflict of viewpoint. This is a conflict of the idea of what quality of life is, of what quality of product is. And like I said, the enemy in this, and I don't like using words like that, but it makes it a little bit more clear. So I don't mean it to the extreme. But in this, in this instance, the enemy actually likes what we're doing. They just don't want to see it in their backyard. That actually gives us an advantage because we can figure out ways to make it fit in their backyard and not look bad. We can figure out ways to create our own communities that do this to the point where they actually envy it and want to be part of it. We can find places where they don't like it, but there ain't jack shit they can do about it. See, there's a thousand little places that we can plug our systems into that they can bitch the high heaven. And you know what it gets them? Nothing but losing energy. But we are going to lose sometimes. But that doesn't mean we lose the war. The next thing is the best way to win a fight is never get in the fight. Avoid the conflict. 
I've never lost a fight that I haven't engaged in. Right? So if we can do things in creative ways that prevent the attack from ever being possible, or make the attack so uncomfortable for the enemy that the enemy dare not attack, then we can always win because we never have to fight. That's not always going to be the case. But we cherry-pick that stuff. My property here is an example of that. Bitch all you want, I don't care. Now, here's the rogue in all this. It doesn't mean that Tarrant County might not decide to pass some laws and change that. But they would have to get that done in a scenario where there's not a lot of support for it. So you also have to look like, so if you're going to mount a guerrilla campaign, you don't want to mount it where the establishment has its beachhead. You want to, you want to mount a guerrilla campaign where you're surrounded by people that support at least the idea of what you're doing, that aren't friendly toward the establishment. So you, you have to think that way. I, and again, I want to say I don't think any of this should be necessary, but it is. So I'm telling you how to do it. I also think that we should do as much as we can inside or in outbuildings. Right, so I'm talking about putting in an outdoor kitchen area and stuff. I can get away with that, but you may want not want to do your canning outdoors in a place where it brings the air of people upon you. You may not want to tractor your quail. You may want to put in a three-sided shelter for your quail that faces a direction that no neighbors can see in, and it's screened by trees or uh, some kind of creative landscaping or whatever. And let their, their droppings fall down into a pile of straw that goes into your warm composting bin that's just off to the side of that. And everything's nice and convenient on your small property. And no one can really see it. You see? That's how you want to do things. You want to keep things unseen whenever you can. As much unseen as possible. Um, on that, tree your perimeter. If you're in the suburbs, you might use those big stupid red tip bushes or something like that on certain because they grow fast and they get huge. They also have a tendency to die at like 15 years. Just die one day. But whatever you can, like, like just block the ability of people to see in. Because like a lot of these su suburbs, if people have two-story housing, when you're upstairs and you look out like your bedroom window or your bathroom window or whatever, you can see like straight into your neighbor's yards. So you want to think about trying to avoid houses that have that kind of a view if you want to engage in these activities. Or how am I going to be able to block that? And how long is it going to take for me to be able to block that? These are all important things. Uh, but tree your perimeter. And if you can do it productively, do so. Because people just don't complain about what they don't see. Um, and start with, like, if you, like, if you have an acre property, because I'm going to say the next thing is, I like to try to find properties that are at least three quarters to an acre for this thing because it gives you a lot more resources and it gives you buffer from your neighbors. You can centrally locate things that have been well thought out and hidden that have space away from people. That's why I like that. But that might mean, you know, treeing an acre, just the perimeter, is a lot of trees. So wherever the most potential for visual observation from a neighbor is, start there. Start there. And, and don't get too comfortable because the neighbor that lives there likes you what you're doing. That's good. That's great. Build that relationship. The problem is they might sell the property to someone who doesn't. So if they like what you're doing, they probably look at looking at a big wall of apple trees. That you say, if it falls on your side of the fence, it's yours. If you can reach over and pick it, it's yours. We'll share. But if somebody moves in, all they know is there was a tree there when they moved in. They don't really need to know what's going on on the other side. Again, I wish this wasn't necessary, but it is. I think a big thing is 
work the system or fight from the outside. Do what works for you. Because I'm so non-interested in anything in government anymore, sometimes I have people that email me and go, I know you probably don't think this matters, but you know, we got this ordinance passed that allows this or that or whatever. I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. I think what we really need to do in a lot of these fights is we need to respect everyone who fights for what's right. Even if they're doing it in a way that we think is pointless. Because when you, when I say I think it's pointless to work in the system, you know what I'm saying? I think it's pointless for me to work in the system. All of my advantages, all of my skills, all of my capabilities, all of my gifts are geared toward working outside the system. And I've, I've learned in my life, the further I got away from the system, the happier and more natural I was in my behaviors. The, the more I look forward to getting up in the morning is the further I am away from giving a shit about the system personally. But I also understand why what I do is effective is effective. The fact that people like me just go do shit and say, dare you to stop me, inspires other people to say, I can pick two or three things that person's doing that I like, and I can do them. And when they run into somebody telling them you're not allowed to do that here, that creates a systemic engagement where those people then that are actively and willing to actively work in the system and know how the system works to then drag the system toward what the anarchist is doing. And this has been repeated throughout history. Again, I've said this before. Rosa Parks didn't go to a town council meeting and ask for an ordinance that allowed black people to sit in the front of the bus. She got on the bus. She got on the bus, and she sat where she wanted to. And that created an engagement where the issue had to be dealt with. And in the end, right prevailed there. And there's many instances of this. Ron Finley is another example. Out in California that started guerrilla gardening and just wouldn't stop. And when they tore out a garden, you just put another one in. It was a renegade action that eventually created popular support that caused the system to yield and give in. And, and, and we all have to pick our battles and what we're good at, what we have the time for, what we have the energy for, what we have the finances for, what we have the, the natural talents and ability for. I mean, some people got really disturbed when I said, I'm crossing over the world of anarchy, you know, because they wanted me to be this political leader of libertarianism. And it's like, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. It doesn't mean I don't respect the people in that world. It doesn't mean I don't respect the people that are, are truly trying to make life better in, in you know more traditional organized politics. I don't think the politicians give a shit, but I think a lot of people that still believe the politicians do, they do care. I think a lot of the people that are oppositional to what we're trying to do with things like urban homesteading and small-scale farming and urban farming, they don't really, again, like I said earlier, they don't really dislike the idea of it. They're afraid. They're afraid that the, the property that they paid $400,000 for, that, that, that their only hope of ever owning it outright is to live long enough to slowly pay off 30 or 40 years of mortgage, maybe 50 years with refinancing, etc. And, and they know that their only salvation is they can probably, probably, if they get in a bad way, sell that property and get out from underneath its crushing load of debt. Or many of them that are smart about when and how they bought know that 
you know, when I'm 70 years old and I don't need this big house, the kids are gone and the grandkids are older and, and what have you, and I want to move into a smaller place, I want to sell this and get a big check, go buy a small property, put that money in the bank and live on it. And they're afraid, they're terrified that somebody doing something that's not normal for that area will ruin that, will destroy that. It's, it's actually preposterous. The, the, the communities that actually have embraced this, the only problem with them is they become inaccessible to people that want to join the movement because the property values go up to where they're no longer able to be entered into. This has been done in a lot of really damaged urban zones. Places like where the urban farming guys are working, places where, like Detroit, and they, people pick these areas with these old houses they can buy for next to nothing. And, and even if there's regulations against it, the, 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 the county, the city, whatever, just doesn't care. They don't care. There's no tax revenue there. If anybody's doing anything there, screw it. At least they're not shooting each other and we don't have to go in there and get shot at. Screw it. And, and all of a sudden these areas start to get revitalized. And more people realize, oh, we can go there and do that. And people start making offers on houses that are a little bit higher. So people that didn't want to sell go, you know what? Yeah, this house isn't worth $40,000. This idiot wants to give me $40,000 for my piece of shit house. I'll take it. And, and that person goes off and does whatever they're going to do. And then that person that bought that house for forty grand comes in and invests another twenty dollars or $30,000 into fixing it, transforms it into part of this expanding community, and... That makes the next house worth a little bit more. And then bars and communities and th uh, different community activities and things like that begin to be reestablished. And the community becomes better and better and better and better. And by the time that happens, and this is a recipe for success, the city, the county, whatever goes, not touching it. No. Uh-uh. Don't want to be the guy that screws that up. I want to get reelected. I'll look stupid if I go mess with that. Nobody's complaining because everybody there is either part of it or never gave a shit in the first place. And eventually the people that never gave a shit in the first place sell out. The last of the abandoned buildings get made nice. And the person that wants that opportunity can't even afford the property anymore because it becomes worth so much. And then we have people in neighborhoods just a few miles away Plain Jane, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhoods, as my dad used to call them, where there's like five houses repeated over and over and over and over, McMansions, are terrified their community will be ruined if they embrace the very thing that revitalized an area that was considered gone. They don't know. It's fear. I, I really recommend watching this High Profits documentary. Because when you hear the business owners, the community members voicing their concern, and again, these are people that two to one or higher voted for marijuana three times in the past, completely flipping that vote when it was presented differently. It's okay, just not in this spot. Because this is where our tourists come, and it might offend them. It's okay, just not on my street, because it might affect my property's value negatively. They don't even really know that it will. It just might, and people fear that. And what it's going to take is a combined attack. Beachheads, wherever we can establish them, that get shit done, right? Revitalization, revitalization programs in these really torn down sectors. If, if you bring 20 people into a block and buy every house on the block, nobody on the block is going to complain. Tough shit, okay? And there's places where financially it's doable. 
if you find the right group of people to bring together. And there's and, they, and you can get into kind of that fringe area or maybe inside the fringe and, and do things as a community. But that takes a lot of people. And, and the reality is most of the stuff we're talking about gets done by decentralization. People like me or you that just say, I'm going to do this myself. I don't care if anybody else does it. And, and I'm going to do it with the means and, and the, the desires that I have. So that's only one thing. And then there's got to be people like us that just do it. There's got to be people that move just outside. And you know what happens every time somebody comes here and buys product from us and brings their children and the kids run around in the yard with the dogs and the dogs jump up and the dogs will get a toy and the kid tries to pet the duck and the duck runs away and the kid becomes a true child. Maybe for the first time in a while that the parent actually looks at this kid that's six, seven, eight years old and they're laughing and their face is flush red because they're excited. And, and they tell them, we're going to go home and eat these eggs. And the kids are excited to eat freaking eggs. The kid's never been excited to eat an egg. They want a little piece of it. They want a little piece of it. You should have to have that conversation going, I'm sorry, where you live right now, this is not for you. Let me tell you some other things you can do, but I would not recommend ducks in your environment. Well, what about one? You can't have one duck and you have to have a, but, but the, all of a sudden you realize like this person that just wanted, just wanted a duck egg because their doctor said that they could handle duck eggs when they can't handle chicken eggs or because they've heard about health benefits or they looked up a recipe that called for them or whatever it was that made them take that first step when they came and they saw what it really was about, the peace inside of them that's, that's not dead but sleeping because society has put it to sleep in people, the wild part of the human being that the sanitizers have tried to put to sleep, to try to put it down like a dog, will never die. It's there. It takes that one little look at it, and it wakes up. And they feel it, and they don't even know. It might be so. They might have grown up in a sanitized environment with parents that grew up in a sanitized environment, with grandparents that grew up in a sanitized environment. They've never even felt it in their life, except maybe on a vacation when they looked at a mountain. They didn't even think it was possible where they lived. And there it is, and it's like, whoa, what? You can see it in their face. What is that? How can we be part of this beyond just coming here and buying this product? That's why these types of these fringe, the, the urban, rural fringe operations that can do whatever they want, that's why it's so important that we actually engage with people on the other side of it. Not so much to the rural side. They can do what they want largely. Some places. Northeast, again, be careful, man. Especially New Jersey, Connecticut. I hate to say it, but my old stomping grounds in Pennsylvania, it's just getting ridiculous, you know? It is. It's unbelievable what's happening. But in most instances, the further you go roll, the more freedom there is. And if you're in a, in a fringe and you can do what you want, then your your people behind you are good. There's people on the other side. Why do you think we do what we do? Do you think that I make enough money off a duck flock that it's that it's like I'm doing it just for money? I mean, really? All of the challenges, all of the trials... All of the bad days, you know, coyotes killing animals that, that you protect, right? Coming out and finding an animal wounded from something and having to put an animal down that you wasn't ready to go yet. Running a hatching uh, incubator and having a bird that just, the day it's born, you know it has to go because it just isn't going to make it. The expense, the energy, the effort, being tied to the property in a way that people without animals are not. You know, I need to find somebody right now to watch my property for a few days if I'm going to take Dorothy to Permaculture Voices with me. 
That's, there's sacrifices to this. I'll tell you why we do it. We do it because almost all the people that come here live somewhere where they can't do it. And it makes them see what they could do if only they had the opportunity. We have to spread this like a disease. We have to spread this like a virus, a positive virus. We have to make people come back into touch with that part of them that they've lost. Because the minute you do, they realize what's actually possible. And they realize what's in the way. Fear, uncertainty, doubt, and the state. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt we can cure like that. The state's a bigger problem. But if we get enough people on board with an idea in a given area, even the state has no power. You need to understand the state really doesn't have any power. The state has the power that the people choose to let it have. I know you don't think that's true, but it is. Because there's 330 million plus people in America. And if half of them decided the hell with this, you're not telling us what to do anymore, we're just going to do it and piss off, there's literally nothing they could do to change that. People don't know their own power. I use proactive apathy. I think it's the most powerful thing that anybody can use. But you use what works for you. But if you want, if you want a piece of this type of thing we're talking about today, figure out what works where you are and make it work to the best of your ability. And if you want more, figure out how much you're willing to do, how much you're willing to sacrifice, how much you're willing to give up in return for the things that you want. Find the balance point and get shit done. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
change love's bright and fragile glow for the glitter and the rouge. And in a moment they were swept before the deluge. Now let the music keep our spirits high. Let the buildings keep our children Chill.